The new NDP government is off and running, making some moves right out of the gate and promising more to come soon. Joining me for a full hour to take an in-depth look at week one and what it means is Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics for Kamloops Computer Center. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Good morning and welcome. The new NDP government, as I said, up and running after being sworn into office on Tuesday. Uh, and they've been busy right out of the gate. To dive into week one, Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer and Rob Shaw join me. Gentlemen, welcome. Good morning, and it really is a new government, Shane. It really is. Before we get going, it sounds like we're being a little upstaged. Uh, it sounds like Melissa McCarthy has resigned from the White House. Am I getting that right? <laughs> yes, Sean Spicer's quit. <laughs> Melissa McCarthy, by the way, was always my favorite Spicer girl. Yeah. <laughs> Very yeah, good. Well, a big blow to Saturday Night Live to have one of their major characters. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I think probably the first exit in probably what is maybe the most difficult job in the White House. I think we're going to see a few of those people rotating through in the months and years ahead. Well, I think being a lawyer for him is going to be challenging. Yeah, that too. Never mind being Attorney General. Mm-hmm. Uh, back to the provincial political scene. Uh, I want to start off with the, uh, the firings of the legislature. Um, uh, not unusual. There uh, always is a sort of a change of staff and a new government comes in. And certainly uh, Carol James, and here's a little bit of tape of her, uh, says uh, this is this is sort of the, you know, this is the way things go. If you take a look, uh, we did not do a wholesale change. Uh, you saw a change in, in political positions. Uh, the BC Liberals certainly had put a number of people into political positions, and, and that's just something that happens when government changes hands. So, yeah, there you go. Although I'm hearing uh, that uh, some ministries have been depopulated right down to even not having any secretaries. Vaughn? Yeah, Mike Farmer told me last evening, and I think he told you this as well, that the only thing left in his office is a Christy Clark poster on the wall. <laughs> they basically cleaned all the staff out. Um, it, the odd thing about what the NDP has done here, Shane, is at the top of the public service, they kept most of the deputy ministers who'd worked under the Liberals. They treated them like professional public servants. They filled the vacancies at the top of the public servants from within, so they promoted people from the assistant deputy minister level. Uh, I think they handled that in exemplary fashion. The odd thing is, when it came to political staff, they lumped some of the obvious political people with people that had been in government for a long time and that were pros and could have been left. And so uh, at the top, they did the right thing. A little further down in the uh, pecking order, particularly with uh, cabinet order staff, uh, I think they went a little too far. Yeah. Keith, you've seen a few of these things. Is it normal or no? Well, we actually haven't seen many of these. <laughs> we, we've only changed government three times in uh, more than 30 years. So um, it's hard to compare uh, back when uh, Gordon Campbell came in in 2001. Uh, the NDP, I think, had already started themselves clearing house to get out of the way for the Liberal avalanche to come in uh, for the Liberals to sort of staff the ministerial offices. What's happened here, from what I, from what I gather, is that the BC Liberal, or the BC Liberal opposition is the biggest in, in history. It's, it's never had this many members, so its budget is quite large. So I gather a lot of the clerical staff in the ministerial offices simply decided to go walk across the building and, and work for the Liberals. So when Mike Farnworth and others come into their offices, they're literally with few exceptions, there's nothing there. Uh, there's no staff. There's no. There's no transition. There's no um, handoff between the former ministerial office and the new ministerial office, and that's why it's taking some time, I think, to make the 
the transition, you still got basically a piece of paper stuck to a, an office door that says, that says, you know, I'm the Minister of Forests sort of thing, without mm-hmm. the actual plaque being there. And when you knock on, I did a tour of the, of the buildings yesterday, knocking on doors. Very few ministerial offices were even open, even though ministers were there, and it was hard to find bodies in some of these places. So, uh, yeah, the, the Liberals left the place pretty barren for the NDP to come into, in, swoop into office, probably not even figuring out how to turn the computers. Rob, is that going to present a bit of a problem as this new government gets up and running? Um, I, you know, I don't, we've already seen the NDP, um, you know, mass hire a whole bunch of uh, friends and insiders in the ministerial kind of level. So all the ministers now have, uh, we, we call them dog walkers here, but they're the aides who carry, you know, people's purses and binders and things like that. To, they all get assigned people very quickly. I, I gather probably in about six weeks they'll have to shuffle them all again when they fully staff the offices. But so far... You know, everyone's got an aide. There's a there's a functioning premier's office, and there's kind of enough of the the core apparatus to get things moving. There's cabinet orders. You can ministers, you know, phone you back if you ask to talk to them. So it's working. It's a massive, you know, amount of people. I think the number they gave, the NDP gave publicly was 125 terminations, which I think is quite low. Actually, it's it's going to be much bigger than that. But that's the technical number, and then uh, and then from there we'll see how much that cost at some point in the future. Uh, Vaughn, there's been uh, you know at least one ministry here that's brand new on mental health, as promised. Uh, any problems there from building a brand new ministry from scratch, uh, minus all this personnel shuffle? Yeah, I think that's... Hor- John Horgan said that Judy Darcy had the toughest job that he handed out uh, for Cabinet. Right about that. Creating a new ministry from scratch is tough in government, and this one is especially difficult because mental health and addictions, the existing programs and the existing clients, like youth with mental difficulties, are scattered over several ministries. So you have to pull all that together, the budgeting, uh, there's privacy issues with files and security, there's arrangements to work with other levels of government. That's all got to be pulled together into a single ministry and while you're managing a crisis, the fentanyl crisis. So, you know, I, I know why they did it. They promised it. They, they had to do it. But I do think that that problem is going to hold up a lot of what they want to yep. do there. Somebody who worked in the bureaucracy years ago said to me, in government, you can reorganize or you can get a bunch of stuff done, but you can't do both at the same time. Mm. Yeah, I wish Judy Darcy all the luck in the world, but boy, she's got a monumental task here. Cutting through that bureaucratic entrenchment that has existed for so long, that, as Vaughn says, encompasses a number of ministries, notably the Ministry for Children and Family Development when it comes to youth mental health versus the Ministry of Health. Uh, there's going to be some turf wars, some privacy issues, some pushback by long-entrenched bureaucrats on, on this that don't want to share... Uh, responsibilities or or even uh, files and privacy. So she's got her work cut out for her. It's not as, as easy as it would seem by simply a stroke of a pen creating a new ministry. This is going to be a very difficult challenge for Darcy. Yeah, not to mention uh, we've got uh, obviously a new cabinet, but uh, there was a lot of lofty campaign promises, uh, fully funding education. We've already mentioned tackling the, uh, the overdose crisis. Uh, on and on it goes. We now have faces in those various portfolios uh, who are going to have, in some cases, a very difficult challenge, uh, basically sort of meeting the bar that was raised during the campaign. Adrian Dixon Healthcare comes to mind. Yeah, and I think uh, just to pick up on the mental health and addictions, I mean, you know, Shane, from talking to Terry Lake, the former health minister, that it's not like the government didn't do anything on the opioid uh, overdose overdose crisis. It moved by government standards quite quickly on on most things. Uh, 
So <laughs> it's going to be difficult for the NDP to, to tackle that issue to affect the change that they say they want to have. Uh, they've talked about widespread naloxone kits. I think government made a lot of progress on that. Uh, the open question is the number of treatment beds, the type of treatment facilities. They have not said if they're doing that or to what extent or how much or where or when that's coming. So there's a lot of big uh, issues that Judy Darcy is going to have to tackle. On the other ones, uh, you know, every minister has a kind of, <clears throat> you know, sort of a, a problem file on the top of their desk of things like Rob Fleming in education. Mm-hmm. He's got to find a bunch of money to get all of the teachers hired properly in the classrooms in 60 school districts by September with the TF, uh, the BCTF saying the government hasn't put enough cash on the table to fully fund that. So everybody's got a bit uh, of an issue to deal with. And, and, and notice, uh, you know, yesterday they, they announced the, the promised increase in, in social assistance rates, $100 a month, yeah. which was nice, but already you've got advocates of uh, poverty, anti-poverty advocates saying that's nice, but it's not enough. And so the NDPs are going to run headlong into this, this raising the bar pretty high and then not being able to meet the expectations of a number of advocacy groups out there. So $100 a month was what was promised, but it's not, it's already being dismissed by some poverty groups, anti-poverty groups. As as token, and that's uh, that's a, that's going to be a, a problem that may exist on a number of other issues of not doing enough as much as your supporters want you to. Yeah, do. although in fairness, Shane Simpson says that's step one, and he's running down a, a long list of things that uh, he says is coming: uh, earning exemptions, uh, poverty reduction plan, stuff like that. So there's still more work to, coming. But you're right. I mean, how long before groups like the BCTF go, "Hey, where's the money"? Now, the one thing they do have, and we, we don't have the audited financial statements for the year just ended yet, Shane, but they're close to being ready, I gather, and expect Carol James will release them soon. Uh, they do have a surplus, at least from last year, and they're in pretty good financial shape this year. So they ought to be able to bring forward some of their promises and fund them when the House sits uh, in September. Uh, that takes some of the pressure off them. I do think, though, that Keith has made a good point, which is if the economy turns, even if it doesn't, satisfying their own interest groups is not going to be easy. It doesn't take very long mm-hmm. for a few policy changes in government to use up a billion dollars. Yeah, you can't make everyone happy all the time, and that's certainly true in politics. Guys, let's take a quick break. Uh, we'll pick this up on the other side here on NL, on Inside Politics with Keith Robin Vaughn. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. You're listening to Inside Politics on Radio NL. Once again, here's Shane Woodford. Uh, before we talk wildfire politics, Rob, you did uh, a pretty good story the other day about uh, the staff uh, salaries, some of the new people bringing on board in the Connections Division of Vancouver. Now, uh, good for them for transparency, but uh, what do you read into that, and what do you think of the liberal attack that this is all, uh, quote-unquote, taxpayer-funded pay hikes? Yeah, well, I mean, I know why the Liberals are attacking, but I think it's slightly weak sauce on their part. Uh, there have been no outrageous uh, pay hikes uh, to the NDP staffers in the Premier's office or, or elsewhere. They're all roughly in the ballpark of what the Liberals were paying, although the Liberals had a different structure. So, yeah, full marks to the NDP for putting the actual salary amounts out. The Liberals used to like to hide that by putting what were called salary bands in, and then you had to find the band, and the band always changed, and it just was a it was a bit of a mess. So there are a lot of staff members who 
our loyal New Democrats, obviously, um, close connections to Vision Vancouver and uh, the city of Vancouver, the chief of staff, Jeff Meigs, and the uh, director, uh, Mira Oric, and uh, the, actually the executive director of Vision Vancouver is on a leave uh, to work uh, for the government as well. So, But that's not a surprise, you know, as we talk about the power center of government shifting from your neck of the woods, uh, Shane, in the interior under Clark to the city of Vancouver and Metro of Vancouver under the NDP, and they've got a lot of connections. Two-thirds of the cabinet are Metro MLAs, and uh, the staff are, are Metro-heavy, too. So it's uh, it's uh, interesting. They're not fully staffed, I don't think, in all the offices, but that's what we've seen so far. Yeah, all right. That's, Keith? That's the big, I think that's the big story, is that, as Rob says, it's the shift. Uh, the shift we saw in 2013 was power flowing out of, political power flowing out of Metro Vancouver, up to the interior, as Christy Clark had to relocate her own uh, riding to Kelowna. And it was really, you know, follow the Fraser River and, and such, and that's where the, the political center of the B.C. Liberals were. Now it's very much in Vancouver and the suburbs. And you've got Vision Vancouver now moving into the B.C. Liberal government and, and the staff from them, but also the ministers. So it's just top-heavy in Metro Vancouver. It's a real shift in political power uh, when you look at the geography of this province. And feeds the ever-growing urban rural divide, Vaughn? Yep. Yes, and the other thing about that power shift, which we all noticed in 2013, Shane, is I think it goes some distance toward explaining why the Liberals didn't pick up on how much political trouble they were in Metro Vancouver. I mean, that's where they mm-hmm. lost nine seats and four cabinet ministers. Yep. And I think because they were so tight uh, with Fraser Valley and the interior and the north, they just didn't pick up on the fact that they were in serious political trouble in that region. The New Democrats need to be on their guard not to repeat that mistake, because they are now in the situation where they have a whole huge region of the province critical to the provincial economy where they don't have a lot of representation. A top liberal told me yesterday that, uh, in retrospect, he said, you know what, we, we were completely tone deaf yep. in Metro Vancouver. We lost the soccer mom, and we weren't listening to that that particular a vital demographic, an elector, is, is the proverbial soccer mom. They lost their way with them, and that's what happens when you're 16 years in power. You become tone deaf. Yeah, and uh, before we move on to Wall, I've said it before, but I cannot believe they did that because I had a number of uh, liberal insiders and, and even MLAs, uh, cabinet ministers, telling me before the writ dropped, uh, they think this thing was going to be won or lost in Metro Vancouver, and yet they could not have positioned themselves more poorly or be more tone deaf to that region. Uh, last week, guys, we talked about uh, the nonpartisan approach in the wildfire front. It didn't take long for politics to rear its head there. John Horgan uh, saying earlier this week uh, that he's asked uh, then Forest Minister of the Liberal Government, John Rustad, to basically stick around. Uh, Christy Clark firing back and saying that's a bit of a mischaracterization. Here's the two of them. I talked to John uh, Rustad again last night and, and asked him. I'd, we've been speaking about it over the past number of days, but I asked him formally yesterday if he would stay on to assist the new minister uh, who will be sworn in at 2 o'clock, and he didn't hesitate to say he would. Well, I talked to John today. I think John's understanding of it is he's going to be briefing the new minister today, which as he should be, because we want to make sure this is a seamless transition and that after the new minister takes over, they are going to open up, we hope they'll be opening up a daily, full, in-depth briefing for all MLAs, including John, so that we can, each of us, work in our communities with our constituents to support them. Uh, Rob, what do you make of all that? 
Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, you know, I think uh, Premier Horgan probably shouldn't have used the phrase stay on because that's not what Rustad was doing. He was simply giving advice, um, you know, keeping the line of communication open. It's uh, it's not, as he, uh, I think you tweeted it out, Shane, he had to, he had to explain himself to his colleagues <laughs> in the Liberals because uh, staying on makes it sound like you're part of the new cabinet or you're part of the new government, and uh, he's not doing that. Although I don't think that would have been the, <clears throat> the worst thing in the world anyways uh, during a provincial emergency to have some type of role in the government. But that's not what's happening. Uh, you know, the, the Liberals are going to very subtly try to exploit this without looking like they're exploiting it. The fact that the NDP have no MLAs, basically, in the interior uh, is going to be a persistent undercurrent in what Christy Clark says without actually saying the, you know, that explicitly uh, in a way that would kind of make it partisan, the wildfire response. But it's not unreasonable to expect MLAs in the middle of a provincial disaster to get briefed every day. Mm-hmm. And uh, Horgan so far has decided to go with this approach of calling people up directly, uh, him and uh, Forest Minister Doug Donaldson, and keeping people in the loop that way. You might maybe make an argument that you get more out of talking to the Premier on the phone uh, than you would in a briefing anyways. I, I don't know, but... Uh, it is a weird, interesting little po- political dynamic that's the undercurrent of all of this. Vaughn, do you? Yeah, I was thinking of praising <laughs> Rustad and the Liberals for, for graciousness on this and say that's kind of a nice sign that, you know, you'd at least keep the lines of communication open and maybe, you know, be on call to offer advice if needed. But, of course... <laughs> They have to. They have to go partisan on it and go overboard and and say, oh no, you know, we're not. I I don't know. I I think this is one that the two parties could have just agreed to just let it slide and say, look, obviously we're going to keep in touch uh, during a crisis instead of making a big. Well, the, the Forest Service has a one o'clock p.m. conference call every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Wildfire Service. So I'm sure the MLAs can get on that if they want. Uh, I think this is. Uh, uh, a bit of silliness, uh, but on a larger picture, Shane, I'm just going by some of the social media comments from the Liberals, uh, where they seem to reflect the attitude that they still won't accept what's happened, that they are not in power, that there is a new uh, gang running the government, and that they don't—they still won't accept the legitimacy of this arrangement from the BC Greens, that it's phony, fake, uh, and and isn't fair, and it's it's you know it's it's a byproduct of our what, what's happened to the Greens and NDP is a is a an outcome that's legitimate under our Westminster parliamentary system, but the Liberals don't seem to agree with that, and it reminds me, and I tweeted this the other day, and it got an enormous reaction on Twitter, is that the Liberals seem to be following making the same mistake the NDP made in post 2013 when they would not accept the fact that despite being ahead of the polls, they lost the election, that Christy Clark won. They didn't accept the legitimacy of the Clark government for a long time, and I think that that weakened them as an opposition. And the Liberals better be careful here that if they don't sort of admit to themselves that they've lost the outcome here, I don't think it's going to uh, hold them very well in opposition, and it's going to it's going to sort of shackle them in terms of getting ready for the next vote. And also, uh, I don't know if hypocritical is the word, but it definitely flies in the face of what uh, Christy Clark said as premier after the election, saying the big message from the electorate is for us to reach across party lines and work better together. Vaughn? Yeah. No, I, uh, look, uh, the Liberals uh, have to do the opposition job, and the sooner they get on top of doing that, uh, the better, because that's what they're paid for. That's how our system works with a good, effective opposition. But part of that is, I think, as Keith suggests, accept the verdict, the legitimacy of what happened, 
and get on with holding the government to account on its promises. The New Democrats made a lot of them. It ain't going to be easy to keep all of them. And that's much more fertile ground for the opposition. And the wiser liberals will look ahead and start doing that. Over to you, Rob. Yeah, you know, the, the mistake, that, <clears throat> to pick up on Keith's point, the mistake that the, you know, the NDP made when they didn't uh, you know, accept the illegitimacy is that they didn't analyze their enemy, their political foe, for strengths and weaknesses for quite a long time to, to figure out how to deal with them. They just kind of refused to do that. And you, uh, you look at the liberals now and you wonder if they're doing the same thing. It's not good enough to just whine about um, the results. You have to look at who, who did Horgan put into cabinet? How can you go about, you know, picking apart the files that you used to have ministers in? And, and what are the strengths and weaknesses of John Horgan and how are you going to deal with it? And if you just complain, uh, you miss the opportunity to really get to know uh, your your enemy, and that <clears throat> the NDP did that for quite a long time, and Clark ran over them, just steamrolled them in the legislature uh, for for several months and probably the better part of a year. So they better get on it fast. Yeah. And stop com- they always have to stop complaining about issues that they really don't have a lot of credibility on, and that's that's things like political hires and appointees and paying people. As Rob said, the, the salary structure for the staff doesn't really very much from what the Liberals did, uh, but uh, the Liberals stack their government with all sorts of friends and insiders, and they can hardly be in a position now to complain that the NDP is doing the same thing. Yeah, let's take a break to the, uh, the bottom of the hour, get caught up with the news with Bob Price. On the other side, uh, some changes at Crown Corporations already. More with Keith Roth and Vaughn and Inside Politics after this break. Radio NL. RadioNL.com. Local. First. For Kamloops Computer Center. This is Radio NL's Inside Politics. Here's NL News Director Shane Woodford. Welcome back. Thank you for listening. We're talking to Keith Baldry, Vaughn Palmer, and Rob Shaw. Guys, uh, already changes made at the various Crown Corporations. Uh, Kathy McClay, formerly of TransLink, is the uh, new director of ICBC. Uh, Cassie Doyle, the chair of the BC Housing Management Commission. And Joy McPhail, appointed chair of ICBC, former MLA and cabinet minister, obviously. Uh, And Kenneth Peterson, appointed chair of BC Hydro. Uh, Vaughn, you got the skinny on Mr. Peterson. Yeah, Peterson's an interesting guy. He's an old uh, BC Hydro guy, uh, worked there for 25 years, uh, has spent 10 years heading up PowerX, which is Hydro's <coughs> electricity trading subsidy subsidiary. Uh, so uh, in, in the midst of uh, one controversy, uh, they got into a big mess with California back in 2000, 2001, and a long legal battle that British Columbia ended up on the losing side of. But uh, the, the thing I would say about Peterson is two things. One, he clearly knows BC Hydro, knows the energy industry. So John Horgan has tapped somebody who has some idea what they're doing going in there. And the other thing is it's a five-year appointment, Shane. So I think uh, Horgan is uh, taking the long view of these appointments. Uh, McPhail is five years at ICBC, and the new head uh, at Housing Management is a five-year appointment as well. Yeah, as we mentioned, BC Hydro and ICBC pose some serious challenges uh, for this government, uh, Keith. Oh man, there, there's some big, big headaches ahead, particularly at ICBC, where the the skyrocketing uh, number of claims and the cost of settling claims has greatly outpaced the uh, the ability of ICBC to cover that simply with uh, with the current rate structure. So something's got to give here. Uh, there's going to have to be a fundamental change to our. Uh, our insurance system. There has to be a, a cap on claims, uh, perhaps, or a, a big boost in our insurance rates. But 
that is a ticking time bomb that the NDP has inherited from the from the Liberals who kept kicking the can down the road, not wanting to really deal with this. Hydro's also got some major challenges with uh, deferring a lot of uh, massive expenses. It's incurred largely through uh, basically what was needed. They had to they, they've got to maintain and. Uh, always improve their massive uh, 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 infrastructure, which is everything from dams to transmission lines to generation plants. Uh, they had to be upgraded. And when when you start doing anything at Hydro, we're talking billions of dollars always, not not millions of dollars. So these are two huge financial headaches uh, that they, they land uh, squarely on the NDP's plate. Rob, now that uh, ICBC has a new director and chair and uh, Hydro has a new uh, chair, do, do we see any future moves to kind of further kind of tackle the, the power structures of those crown corporations? Yeah, I mean, it's important to keep in mind, John Horgan can't just come in and fire the CEO of the of BC Hydro, for example. They need to replace the board, or the chair of the board at least, or other people in the board, and then the board finds a new CEO. So that that's kind of how it would work, and you, you'll see them tackle that issue probably in the days ahead but um you know it's this is going to be a problem for the new democrats because like on bc hydro for example dumps money into the government budget every year Mm -hmm. even when it doesn't have it it borrows money it's going to borrow 850 million dollars for the next three years to give back to the government in the form of dividends money hydro doesn't even have and that's on the budget that the NDP have inherited. So they're going to have to, you know, take a bath on that if they want to end that practice, which they have said they want to do, and the Liberals were in the process of maybe trying to do. So th- those have that has real budgetary implications for the NDP. And then on the ICBC side, people get irate when their insurance uh, rates go up. It's a monopoly for basic insurance, and yet. I mean, those insurance rates are being subsidized by the optional side of ICBC, which actually makes money. And the Liberals were just dumping the optional cash back onto the basic side, which used to be illegal, uh, but they changed a lot to allow that to happen. And, you know, I don't see any magic way out of that without blowing up the core structure of ICBC as well. So two huge issues that are inside ministries. Actually, ICBC is under the Attorney General's ministry, so David Eby inherits that headache, uh, and Hydro is under Michelle Mangal, and then those are going to be massive problems. They're going to take quite a long time for the, the new ministers to get their heads around. And by the way, I asked Finance Minister uh, Carol James about whether they would stop uh, the process of dividends, and this was her response. Cabinet will be having those discussions. It's early going yet. We'll need to take a look. We committed in the platform to an independent investigation of both Hydro and ICBC getting a handle of with what's going on in there, and so that'll be job number one, to make sure we know exactly where the finances are at, what's going on in both of those Crown Corporations. And then the discussions will occur around how we can fix the mess they've left for us. There you go, Vaughn. Yeah, the mess. Uh, there certainly is one with both of those. And I, I, I'll take the ICBC one as an example because there is a report internal done uh, this year from ICBC on why accident rates are rising, why claims are rising, and what could be done about it. And I think I was. I was told that either the lawyers won't like the remedies or the ratepayers won't like the remedies or the victims of accidents won't like the remedies and maybe all three will be ticked off because what you're probably going to see, Shane, is we're going to venture into what's been done in some other provinces, which is not full-blown no-fault auto insurance but limits on claims for some kind of accidents to try to discourage the the rising cost of settling claims and of legal battles, soft tissue injuries, 
Uh, the other thing is, that I'd say not out of the question, Shane, that you're going to see a return of photo radar in some form oh. on British Columbia, because there's a call for that as well. Oh, that's interesting. That's going to make some people angry. We uh, don't call it photo radar anymore. No. What's the, what's the term, Bob? Speed cameras. Speed cameras. Speed cameras. Yeah. Speed cameras. Huh. Interesting. Uh, as far as the uh, budget goes, the NDP have promised to balance the books, but as uh, we've just talked about, there's some pretty hefty fiscal challenges here, Keith. Are, are we going to see that old adage of, ooh, the books were worse than we thought? Oh, I think there'll be a bit of that, but uh, Dion laid out the books for us before uh, before their departure from government, and because the the budget is in such a massive surplus, I don't see how it suddenly goes into a, a deficit, uh, simply because of a fresh look at the books. Having said that, though, I think they will look at the Crown Corporations and will come up with a very negative review of Hydro and ICBC's internal finances, and I think that's where the books are going to look a lot worse than they looked uh, before the, the transfer of power. But on the general core government uh, side, I don't think there's going to be much of a change, with the exception, of course, the firefighting budget is going to be massively larger than what was originally in there, because... Mm. The fire, the, the the budget to fight fires is sort of phony, anyways. It, yeah. You spend what you spend. You know, it's um, if there's a fire, you put it out. And some years there's not a fire, and so the budget isn't that big. So it's sort of a phony number going in, but it does have an impact on the bottom line. I suspect that number will detract from the from the uh, surplus the Liberals had. Yeah, for example, the budgetary line for the firefighting, I think, right now is sixty three million dollars, but the actual cost is now uh, well over a hundred million dollars. Uh, Rob, uh, do you think? I mean, we're going to see a partial budget uh, probably early September, full budget as usual in February. Uh, do you think they're going to be able to kind of balance the books and fulfill all of their lofty promises, or no? Well, you, you have to wonder if they're going to carry through immediately with the plan, the tax hikes that the NDB had promised in the election, which was. Uh, you know, to return the the higher income tax bracket for people who earn more than one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year and raise the corporate tax rate by a point. And together, the, I think they've uh, those brought in hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in new revenue. Do they need to do that right now in this first budget? Uh, if they have a giant, uh, you know, whack of cash sitting there, um, I'm not sure. But they could and and free up a little bit more money there if they're if they're going to find themselves slightly tight uh, on the books. I think more likely, and Carol James has kind of hinted at this. Is they will just accelerate some of their provinces uh, promises up to to use the money that they have. So maybe ten dollar a day childcare doesn't take ten years, and it doesn't come in by one age group every year. Uh, maybe you you start with two or three, or you you accelerate some of those promises. So that it'll be an interesting um, you know uh, look at the finances. We don't really even know. We know how the last fiscal year ended with that massive surplus but the current year in the budget that the liberals presented was a surplus of 200 something million dollars i think we don't know how where they're on track to how much larger that is and that's the kind of year that the ndp have to deal with so the numbers will be will be very interesting when we see them absolutely uh, let's pick up this discussion on the other side of a quick break here uh more with uh, rob keith and vaughn and inside politics and nl right after this radio nl radio nl.com local first accountable to you this is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL. Welcome back. Thanks for listening. We were talking about budgetary challenges just before the break. Uh, to pick up on that, one of the big challenges will be uh, some holes in the revenue side. Uh, Keith, the uh, MSP is a, a much maligned fee that most British Columbians absolutely despise. Uh, John Horgan's going to cut that thing in half en route to scrapping it per his campaign promise in, I believe, in the uh, spring budget, not the fall budget. Uh, is that going to pose a challenge? Well, that blows a billion-dollar-plus hole on the budget, on the revenue side. I mean, MSP brings in a lot of money. I think 
uh, approaching two and a half billion dollars a year. Um, but I again, I go back to actually a. I keep on my desk a piece Rob wrote, if you can believe it, um, <laughs> of, uh, of an interview with Horgan from last year, where he questioned the need to uh, always have austerity as the heart and soul of your uh, financial plan, that balancing the budget was not sacrosanct all the time. Uh, so I wonder whether or not um, we're going to see much of uh, an adherence to a balanced budget. Even though Carol James talks about that, uh, well, uh, not so much this year, but next spring. I mean, keep in mind that the NDP has to keep in right in front of them the fact that they may have to go to an election very quickly. That maybe they don't enjoy that that uh, that rigidity in the House in terms of confidence, or by their own design, they want to pull the plug early. They're going to have a lot of ambitious spending plans put in front of the uh, the legislature. I think in front of the people of BC, whether it's that expensive daycare uh, plan, the expensive promise to abandon MSP premiums, uh, a number of capital projects of building transit lines and getting rid of tolls, all these things that are very popular with voters but do have a, a cost to the bottom line. And I think Horgan has signaled in that interview with Rob that he is prepared to t- sacrifice the balance of the books at all costs in favor of these popular m- measures. And, uh, and particularly that becomes, I think, more a part heart and soul of the NDP platform because they know an election may be just around the corner. Rob, do you keep anything at Keith's on your desk? <laughs> uh, just a big signed glossy photo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, this is an interesting point. I I mean, they'll take some flack for doing it that way if they do. They might just decide to spend almost every single dollar there is in the surplus and take it down to that beyond the razor's edge that Mike DeYoung used to talk about as finance minister. He didn't like getting too close to a complete balance because then, you know, slight shifts take you into deficit. Maybe the NDP don't care. Maybe they'll take, spend almost every penny. And if the economy changes a little bit and they plunk into deficit, they'll say, well, it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. And they're going to, like I said, they're still on the hook for indeterminate costs. I mean, what does fully funding education mean, Vaughn? Uh, probably hundreds of millions of dollars more because they've, they've, They've loaded that into a promise to uh, get rid of portable classrooms in some in some metro districts. So that's those are expensive. Takes time to build them. Uh, another one that we really don't know how they're going to do this, Shane, and it, it'll it'll make people who paid for the Coca-Cola feel really good about this. But mm-hmm. the Liberals are going to get rid of tolls on a provincially owned bridge, the Port Man, and on a bridge the province doesn't even own, which is the Golden Ears Bridge. Uh, near as we can determine, that is going to cost, mean, a $5 billion addition to the taxpayer-supported debt of the province. That's, as near as we can determine, that debt, which is now supported by the tolls, so it's self-supporting, right. is going to go into the provincial books, $5 billion. We don't know how big the annual subsidy is going to have to be to get rid of those tolls. And at the same time, the government is talking about taking another bridge and replacing it, the Patalo. That's probably a billion dollars that was going to be supported by tolls, no tolls. And they still haven't figured out what to do with the replacement bridge for the Massey Tunnel, $3.5 billion. It was going to be supported by tolls. Now it won't be. So the impact on the books of that promise is going to be in the billions of dollars. Although I will say as a former Lower Mainland resident, uh, the tolling scheme put in place by the Liberals, in my opinion, uh, was harebrained and simply did not work. You told them all or told none of them, but the, the current process with the Portman and the Golden Ears uh, was unfairly, unfairly balanced on the backs of, of one segment of the Lower Mainland. It was a dumb idea. 
I, You're I right, and, and road, road pricing is going to come back. They, people in the Lower Mainland are going to discover that they're getting rid of tolls, and they're going to be paying road pricing instead. I think you can argue the Liberals lost that el- the, the election on the issue of tolls. When the NDP came out and said we're getting rid of tolls, that was basically writing a check for about $1,500 to thousands of voters who lived in Surrey, in Burnaby, in uh, in the Tri-Cities area, it cost the Liberals big time, I think. And they, they frankly tried to match it with their half-hearted, say, well, we'll cap it at $500. Um, it may be bad policy to abandon the idea of tolls and road pricing, but when it comes to courting support from the electors, it's a, it's a harebrained, uh, guaranteed win strategy. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk a little bit more about uh, the disability and income assistance, and we touched on that. It's a hike of $100 uh, for a rate that essentially has been frozen for a decade uh, and as well has been one of the main punching bags for the former Liberal government with the uh, bus pass clawback, uh, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, Rob, is this a good move by the NDP to kind of address what has been sort of a sore spot or no? Yeah, it's uh, fulfilling uh, an easy promise for them to make immediately, and they can do it through a cabinet order, a stroke of a pen by the new social development uh, minister, Shane Simpson, one of the first items that the Horgan cabinet uh, dealt with after the wildfires earlier this week. So, uh, you know, as Keith pointed out, there's already the the advocacy groups are saying that's great, but, um, you know, we could use some more. It uh, doesn't bring people out of poverty, but that is something that Shane Simpson, who, whose ministry title has now changed to include poverty reduction as part of his, his title, He's going to deal with that through developing some type of legislated poverty reduction plan with timelines and targets and things that will take a, a number of months to put together. And it will be an interesting challenge to see how he does that and what kind of box it puts the New Democrats in in terms of legislated in law um, benchmarks that they have to hit because those always come back to haunt governments. You think of the climate change legislation, oh, you've got to reduce X amount by X year and then pretty soon you discover you're never going to do that in law. So that'll be interesting and uh, and Simpson finds himself in kind of one of the more volatile ministries. It's good news now, but uh, it won't be good news forever. By the way, I asked Shane about his uh, mandate letter from uh, John Horgan uh, and here's what he had to say. The first one, which was uh, great to be able to address it right off the get-go, was the $100. We also have commitments around the poverty reduction strategy, around earning exemptions, uh, a commitment for the guaranteed income pilot that we have said we will do, and we'll start working on that, and a commitment to design and implement a homelessness strategy for British Columbia. Keith? Well, I'll believe it when I see it. I think these are... These are Promises that are easy to make, but, you know, a poverty reduction plan is Rob start setting targets. It's very easy to miss those targets, and you can get bogged down in some, uh, in, uh, some, some big problems on this. So, um, I mean, again, good luck to Shane Simpson uh, for this, but I think he's got a challenge ahead to, to set a plan and then to stick to it, particularly if the economy wobbles a bit and goes south a little bit when the government revenues aren't as strong. Mm-hmm. It's... Uh, it's a, it's a lofty challenge for him and a lofty promise, and we'll see if he's up to it. Over to you, Vaughn. Yeah, the New Democrats, when they came in in 91, uh, let the, the budget loose on social assistance, and they ended up with a budget crisis. Uh, costs were jumping 15, 16, 17 percent. Glenn Clark was the finance minister in those days, and he finally put a stop to it. They had to they had to rein in, and it it was wrenching for them. Uh, they had to they had a lot of pushback from their own interest groups. But as I said earlier, it uh, the provincial budget is in a bit of surplus right now, but it doesn't take very long for governments making promises to use that up 
and more, and I think reining in expectations will be one of the big challenges this government faces. I wanted to finish on this. We're going to see a, a sitting legislature likely early September. Uh, we're going to once again have that thorny issue of the Speaker in the spotlight. Now that we've had cabinet ministers out there and various other NDP MLAs handed jobs, uh, uh, any idea who the Speaker will be? I know Raj Chuhan's name gets tossed around quite a bit. Rajahan was the uh, deputy speaker, so one assumes he'd be the logical candidate. I think Rob spotted uh, Spencer Chandra Herbert uh, took a photo of himself sitting in the, the mock speaker's chair that's out in the legislative grounds right near where I park my car, actually, and um, put it on social media. And someone, what was it, Rob said, uh, is, is this uh, a hint of something to come? And Spencer sort of teasingly said, maybe. So um, who knows whether he'd be uh, a, a potential speaker, although he does have a small uh, uh, infant, basically, and I don't think uh, if you're the parent of a new child, you want to be a speaker in B.C. because you have to sit in that chair a long time. You can't leave. There's no breaks, and you better have a strong bladder. <laughs> Vaughn? Yeah, there are three or four type uh, speaker-type jobs at the legislature. There's speaker, deputy speaker, deputy chair of the committee of the whole, and assistant deputy speaker. And the the New Democrats may end up having to fill all those posts for themselves because I don't think the Liberals are much interested in them. So there still are a few jobs to be handed out. We uh, we saw 12 uh, New Democrats left off the list when the cabinet and the parliamentary secretaries. There's been a few jobs handed out since then for whip and things like that. So a caucus chair. So they, the speaker's jobs will be officially filled when the House sits because those are elected positions by the MLAs. And uh, to you, Rob, where's your money going on, Speaker? I think uh, I think Raj is probably the best bet. And, and no matter who it's going to be, the issue of them voting to break ties in the House is still one that gets kicked around by the Liberals. But I think we're sort of beyond pulling our hair out on that crisis that's going to happen. Whoever the Speaker is will vote to break ties. It is not illegal um, it's not what's supposed to happen under convention, but uh, we're in weird times, and it'll be a weird speakership. It'll be much more partisan um, than we're used to, and uh, whoever it is, they'll just start voting to do whatever the Democrats want, and uh, and that'll be it. I don't think the system will collapse. Uh, the Liberals will complain a bit, but life will go on. Yeah, uh, it's going to be a stage is set for an interesting week, too, uh, as we're about four or five days into the new John Horgan government. Uh, gentlemen, uh, always appreciate your input and your expertise. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Take care, Shane. Okay, we'll talk to you next Friday. There's Rob Shaw, Von Palmer, and Keith Baldry on Inside Politics, analyzing week one of the new NDP government and the various political stories bouncing around the province. We'll see you again here on NL next Friday for another edition of Inside Politics. See you then. The Valley's first choice for local news. CHNL, 610 AM in Kamloops and streaming online at RadioNL.com.